All right, thank you so much for being back. Go ahead and take your Bible again and join me in the book of Ephesians and in your notebook, uh, page seven, put your husband where your heart is, the irresistible wife. Now, as we saw just a moment ago, God calls a husband to love his wife and to understand uh, his wife. Interestingly, God calls a wife to submit to her husband and to admire her husband. And you know, interestingly, a number of years ago, Southern Baptists changed the Baptist faith and message and added a article uh, on the family. Uh, And in that, it talked about husbands sacrificially loving their wives and wives graciously submitting to their husbands. Well, the secular media went just crazy. And uh, I was at Southern Seminary at that time, and I was the academic vice president, the dean of the School of Theology, and uh, along with Dr. Moeller, got phone calls and emails, and the question again and again was, where in the world did y'all get this idea that women should submit to their husbands? And the response, of course, was from the Bible. We didn't make this up. Uh, We didn't come up with this. This is what God's word says, but I want to put it in its proper context and make sure we rightly understand what God is saying and what he is getting at. And then we'll talk about some very tangible ways that you can be a blessing to your husband, just like we did with the husbands a moment ago. Now, we really should start with verse 21 because there it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when it comes to marriage and family, all of us are to have a attitude and a disposition of submissiveness. Then we ask, how does that work itself out? Well, for a husband, his submissive attitude toward Christ leads him to love his wife and to work at understanding her. To a wife, it works out that she relates to her husband in the same way that the church does to Christ and that she also respects and admires him. So verse 21, wives, submit to your own husbands, not every man, be very clear there, to your own husbands, and here's the key phrase, as to the Lord. In other words, when a wife is yielding in her will, to the leadership and guidance and direction of her husband. She's actually honoring the Lord. She's pleasing Jesus. So always keep that in mind. As you yield to your husband, as you submit to your husband, you do it as to the Lord, you honor Christ. Now, here's the biblical rationale. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, let me say a number of things about this. First of all, I emphasized very clearly. It does not say that every woman is to submit to every man. That's not biblical. Uh, My wife would tell you that she submits in two areas in her life in respect to men. She submits to me and like me. We submit to the pastoral leadership of our church. I'm not a pastor. I have a pastor, and I look at him as a spiritual authority and a spiritual leader over me. And as I'm going to say in just a moment, when it relates to husbands, unless my pastor were to lead or ask me to do something that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, I'm going to follow his guidance and leadership. Well, what if you disagree with him? Well, that's too bad. God called him to be the under-shepherd of our church, not me. 
And so my responsibility is to, as Hebrews 13 says, to honor him and obey him and yield to him that he may do what he does with pleasure and joy and not with grief. And that is the responsibility of a churchman or a church woman. So my wife would say, I gladly submit to the pastoral leadership of our church and I gladly submit to Danny as well. So it's not every man, but it is to those particular avenues. All right, submission. Boy, it just feels like a dirty word, doesn't it? It ought to be a four-letter word, but it's not at six. And so we just like, I don't feel like talking about it. it just, it, you know, it, it, it just doesn't feel right. Well, I understand that because no one is naturally submissive. Naturally, we all want male and female what we want, when we want it, and then the way that we want it. So we are not naturally inclined to submit. We have to be commanded to do it. But then we also have to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work inside of us to enable us to joyfully do it. Furthermore, most of us have an inaccurate understanding of what submission is. We think, because the world wrongly thinks, that submission, in our way of thinking, submission equals inferiority. But it absolutely does not. And I'll prove it to you by one of the most central cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. In fact, I'm going to find out very quickly how good Brother Jeff has done at teaching you all theology. So we're going to find out if he's been good at teaching you theology. So we're going to enter into my systematic theology class, and I'm going to ask you two questions. So you're either going to make a hundred, a 50, or a zero, all right? And I do want audience participation at this point. So question, we believe in a doctrine called the Trinity, We believe that there's one God, and yet in some mysterious way, this God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's my question. Do we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three are equally and fully God? What is the answer? Very good. Yes. Whatever it is that makes God God, The Father is all of that, the Son is all of that, the Holy Spirit is all of that. Let me be very precise. If being God means that you are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, holy, just, righteous, the Father is all of that, the Son is all of that, the Spirit is all of that. All right, very good. Now, question number two. In his assignment to save you and me from our sins. Is God the Son submissive to God the Father? Very good. That wasn't quite as strong as I wanted, but those of you that were courageous, yes. God the Son is willingly, yea, as Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, joyfully for the joy of the cross, he died for us. He is willingly submissive to his Father. I can prove both from one book of the Bible, the Gospel of John. Go to the Gospel of John and you'll hear Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Clear affirmations of deity. Yet in the same Gospel, he says, the Father is greater than I. Now, boys and girls, that means something. He also says, I only do that which the Father shows me. So equal in his essence as God, 
but submissive in his assignment to save you and me from our sins. Ladies, in a real sense, Jesus is your ultimate role model for how you submit and yield to your husband. Are you equal as an image bearer of God with your husband? Absolutely. Everything that involves the image of God, you have as fully as does your husband. So your submissiveness has nothing to do with your value or your worth or your essence. It simply is the God-given assignment that the Lord has given you to fulfill, all right? Now, there's a very important phrase that we have to, I think, give a little attention to, uh, especially in our day and age, at the end of verse 24. Look at it where it says, and why should submit in everything to their husbands? All right, does everything mean everything without any qualification? And I think the answer to that is no. You say, oh, so there are some loopholes about this submission thing. I wouldn't want to call them loopholes, but I would say that there are some biblical principles and biblical guidelines that inform that last phrase. And I said it a moment ago, ladies, if your husband were to ask you to do something that is unethical or unbiblical, a clear violation of scripture, If he were to ask you to do something that is illegal or immoral, I think you have to say to him, though I love you and I want to submit to you, to quote Charlotte Aiken, I have a greater Lord than Danny Aiken and his name is Jesus. And I recognize that in 1 Peter 3, it says that Sarah called her husband Abraham Lord. By the way, Jeff, I'm still working on that with Charlotte, but she won't get there. I mean, she has not gotten to the point where she will call me Lord. I said, how about King? She slapped me. No, she did not. But no, she, she's not going to do that. But she will say to you, okay, I recognize that's what the Bible says. Well, Danny, if he is my Lord, it's with a little L. Jesus is my Lord with a capital L, and she will be very clear, and I'm glad she's very clear. If I ever have to make a decision between honoring Jesus and honoring Danny, Danny is going to lose like every single time, and that's exactly how I hope that she would think, because I do not have the right to ask her to do something illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, all right? Let me add on. Does being submissive mean that you put yourself in a situation that is physically dangerous to you? No, it does not. Submission, let me just say it bluntly, does not mean getting your brains beat out. Submission does not mean living in an abusive, dangerous, threatening situation. Now, I want to be very clear. I personally have never counseled anyone to get a divorce, though I do believe the Bible allows for divorce in some very clear areas. I don't think it's blanketed. Any reason? No, 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 no. But there are some reasons where I do believe the Bible would allow it, though I've never counseled for a divorce because I always pray and hold out for reconciliation. But I have counseled women to separate I have counseled women to take out a warrant and have an abusive husband arrested. 
I have never told a woman that she should stay in a situation where she and the children are in any kind of danger. I never have. I never will. That is not what the Bible means by submission. So let's make sure we are crystal clear about that. By the way, since we're here for just a moment, just so that you understand, uh, the law says that if you are aware of a child being abused, it is you, you, you break the law and you run the risk of being arrested, charged, and convicted if you do not report even suspected child abuse. So let's make sure that we're clear. And, and let's again be clear. When we have it within the body of Christ, which we pray will be very seldom if ever, we have to deal with it both on a church level and a legal level, okay? Make sure you keep that in mind. We have the church's responsibility in a situation like that, but there's also the law that gets involved in situations like that as well. Now, when it comes to spouses, the law is not as, as clear and is not as uh, demanding. Still, at the same time, this is me. If I know of a situation where a spouse is being uh, physically abused, uh, it's about 99% of the time I'm going to call the police. Uh, there are occasions where a wife will say, well, uh, it's more emotional than physical. I don't want you to get the law involved. I think that would be more problematic. It can get muddy. I want to be fair. There are times where situations like that can get muddy, but I'm going to be clear. I'm always going to quickly take the role of the abusee, the one that's being abused, and I'm going to step in and try to assist her and help her or him in any way, in every way that I can. But I want to just be very clear. Submission does not mean subjecting yourself to abuse. It does not mean that at all, all right? But one last word. First Peter chapter three is unbelievably interesting because there in verses one through six, Peter deals with a situation where you have, now listen very carefully, you have a saved wife, but an unsaved husband. And what does Peter counsel the saved wife to do in her relationship to the unsaved husband? He says, submit. Submit that you might win him without a word. In other words, and maybe this doesn't apply to anyone that's here, maybe it does, but you certainly have friends. You will never gripe or nag a spouse into the kingdom. That is not gonna happen. You can win them, though, by living out before them the radically transformed life made possible by your relationship with Jesus. But ladies, if you're here this morning and you are married to a saved man, well, if God says an un, a saved wife should submit to an unsaved husband, how much more should you be willing, yea, joyful to submit to a saved husband? And again, you honor God. And secondly, there's just something about that sweet, gentle, submissive spirit on the part of a woman that can take a hard male heart and melt it and transform it. I've seen it over and over and over and over. So you bless him, first of all, with your submission. Secondly, you bless him with your admiration. And just look at the end of verse 33. And let the wife see, and the most translations will have the word, let the wife see that she respects. It could be understood to mean honor. 
that she admires her husband. So you bless him with your submission and you bless him with your admiration. Now, how does that look in everyday life? Take your little booklet, turn over to page eight and page nine and let me do as I did with the guys a moment ago and walk you through some very tangible, specific ways that you can bless your husband as you live out the issues or live out the, 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 the commands of submission and respect. And we'll have some fun here. Number one. You love him and bless him by giving him your admiration and respect. And the underlying part says it all. Be proud of your husband, not out of duty, but as an expression of sincere admiration for the man you love and with whom you have chosen to share your life. Now, I cannot explain it, but I can be very clear with you. Outside of Jesus, What my wife Charlotte thinks about me matters to me more than anybody else. I can preach at your church tomorrow. And when I get through, you can greet me at the back and say, you thought about another job? Where did you get that sermon? That was pathetic. That was pitiful. You can send me an email, which I get from time to time and just chew on me. And, And it won't make me happy. I mean, it won't be like, well, thank you. That was so sweet of you to send me that, that critical, ugly, mean, smart alecky. I, you know, we all get them, but my wife could say to me, honey, you preached an incredible sermon. You honored the Lord. You blessed me. That was great. And I'm good to go. I'm like, you asked Jeff Long, every time a man leaves church on Sunday, in his automobile with his wife. The first thing he does is he looks at his wife and he says, honey, how did I do? And it doesn't matter what y'all think. What matters is what she thinks. Again, this came home to me very painfully a number of years ago. I was teaching at Crystal College in Dallas, Texas. And I was invited to speak in chapel. And so I was gonna be preaching to a bunch of ministerial students and sitting right over here were 30 faculty members with their PhDs. Well, I certainly did not want to embarrass myself in front of my colleagues. So I preached on Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Uh, Most of you will know verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then what follows is what most Bible scholars think was an early Christian hymn, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, came in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him, da 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 Well, I probably studied 50 hours for that one sermon. I I read 20 commentaries. I listened to about 12 messages. I did detailed word studies of the Greek word kanao, harparkan, and harpagmos. I laid that out that morning. I talked to that faculty and those students about what is known in systematic theology as the canonic Christology, the emptying of Christ and the hypostatic union, the joining of uh, the human and the divine nature. And I unwrapped all that for them. When I got through, my colleagues, wonderful job, outstanding, way to go. Students, hey, boy, you really challenged us. Thank you. So I felt good. Well, about four months later in December, we went home to Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from, to see my mom and dad and Charlotte's mom. And a friend of mine that lives in Griffin, Georgia, Griffin, Georgia, South Atlanta, about an hour, used to be kind of a country town. It's growing up a little bit, but still kind of country. Friend of mine said, hey, Brother Danny, he pastored Mount Gilead Baptist Church out in the country. Why don't you come down and, and we can visit and you can preach for us on Sunday night and just preach a Christmas message. 
Well, sure, I can do that. Philippians 2, by the way, is a great Christmas text. So I got down there to those sweet country folks in Griffin, Georgia, farmers and things, and I preached that sermon exactly the same way I preached it back in my chapel a few months earlier. I, I talked to them about canonic Christology and the hypostatic union. I shared with them my insight of the Greek words kanao, harparkon, and harpagmos. When I got through, <clears throat> a layman in the church who loves me like a son came up to me, and I didn't really pay attention because I thought he praised me. But in actuality, what he said was, wow, you surely studied a lot for that sermon, and there was a lot of meat in that sermon. Now, I took that as Billy Graham can retire. That was like Hall of Fame sermon because he said there was a lot of meat in that sermon. Well, you know, meat can be what? Tender or tough. Well, anyway, he didn't do that. So we get in our van to drive back up to Atlanta to stay with my parents and my wife sitting there in the seat. And I did what I always do. I, and I knew what the answer was going to be. I said, honey, how did I do tonight? And she looked at me and she said, oh, you, you did fine. Uh, time out. <laughs> Rewind and let's unwrap that. First of all, folks, anytime anybody begins a sentence with the word, oh, they mean, oh, no. I wish you had not asked that. And they are trying to find the right words to speak the truth, but not pulverize you. So I picked up on that immediately. Secondly, fine did not mean fine. Fine meant you crashed and burned. And so I fired back at her. Well, what do you mean I didn't do good? Now that's bad grammar, but I didn't care about the grammar at that moment. So I said, what do you mean I didn't do good? And she looked at me and she said, well, I didn't say that. I said, well, yes, you did. You said fine, but you didn't mean fine. Now, I, I wanna know the truth. You, you can tell me the truth. Now I was lying, of course, but I said, I wanna know the truth. Tell, tell me what you really think about my sermon. And she said, well, honey, if you really wanna know what I think, I think you forgot who you were preaching to. I mean, these are like regular, normal people. They're, they're farmers and things. She said, I mean, sweetheart, you, you use some big words tonight. You, you, you use some words I've never heard before. And I said, well, if you'd gone to college like me, you'd know those words. Oh, it's, it's, just, it's just so sad, the, the dumb that can come out of the human mouth. I mean, it just really is. And so she looked at me and she said, fine, which fine didn't mean fine again. <laughs> fine, since you care so much about what I think, why don't you just shut up and leave me alone? Well, I didn't have to leave her alone. She left me alone for about two weeks again, just like it was not a happy Christmas. And you say, well, you were a jerk, guilty as charged. Well, why'd you say such a dumb thing? We call it hurt my feelings. I wanted to hear her say, I did great. And when she said, I didn't do great, it hurt my feelings. And so I lashed out. And you say, well, why do you care? I just do. I care more about what that woman thinks about me than anybody else. And this I have learned in life. I've watched, I watch people and I listen and pay attention, at least in this area. You know what I've learned in life? A great woman can take a mediocre man and she will raise him up and make him better. But a not so great woman can take a pretty awesome guy and she'll pull him down to the level of the mediocre or even lower. Ladies, you have that much influence in the life of your husband. He cares that much about what you think. Now you may say to me, well, he doesn't act like it. I don't care how he acts. Men are good at putting on an act. I'm just telling you, 
God wired him in such a way that he cares greatly what you think about him. That's why the Bible says, and let the wife see that she respects, that she admires, that she looks up to and is proud of her husband, okay? Now, number two, you can bless your husband by providing sexual fulfillment. We all knew this one was coming. Let's look at the paragraph. Become an excellent sexual partner to him. Study your own response to recognize and understand what brings out the best in you then, and it is underlined for a reason. Communicate this information to your husband and together learn to have a sexual relationship that you both find repeatedly satisfying and enjoyable. Now, when men have been surveyed, I don't think you'd be surprised to know that they do not say that sexual fulfillment is second on their list. Men always say when it comes to their relationship in marriage that sexual fulfillment is number one. Well, it's not. Now, it's close. It's, it's like a photo finish at a horse race, but it's not number one. It's number two, and here's why. Ladies, if you say to your husband, I love you, I admire you, I think you are wonderful, but I have no interest in being intimate with you. Not only will you not meet his need for sexual fulfillment, you will also not meet his need for admiration and respect because a man finds it impossible to believe that my wife loves me, admires me, respects me, and is proud of me, but she is not interested in being intimate with me. Now, we're all big people, so I'm gonna address this. I'm gonna be careful and tactful. I may get up to the edge, but I'm not gonna jump off the cliff, but I just wanna speak very plainly about this particular area for just a couple of moments and say some things I hope will be helpful to you. Uh, number one, let's just remind ourselves. Sex was God's idea. Wasn't your idea, wasn't my idea. Sex was God's idea. And personally, I think God was having a really good day when he came up with the sex thing. That's just my own personal opinion. But I think God was doing really good that day. And God gave it to us as a wonderful gift to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. In fact, God is so pro-sex, he gives us an eight chapter book that's almost exclusively dedicated to intimacy within marriage called the Song of Solomon. So God is very much in favor of this thing, but here's the deal. Even though God made us so that everything fits physiologically, it's still an area of some challenge and sometimes of some disappointment. And part of the reason is men and women approach this thing from very opposite perspectives. In fact, Gary Smalley said it perfectly a number of years ago. He said, when it comes to intimacy in marriage, men are very much like microwave ovens, but women are a whole lot more like crock pots. And I didn't say crack pots, I said crock pots. Now, what does he mean by that? He means this, men are creatures of sight. Men are moved by what they see. And when a man sees what he likes, like a microwave oven, boom, he can heat up and it takes him no time at all. Guys, women are not like microwave ovens. They are like crock pots. Why? Because they are not creatures so much of the eye as they are creatures of the ear and of the heart. And so because they are wired in that kind of a way, like a crock pot, they just have to kind of simmer and simmer 
And sometimes they just have to simmer, simmer, simmer before they are going to be ready and they're going to be interested. So we come at this particular gift of God from very different perspectives, all right? Secondly, the odds that you and your mate have identical appetites in this area is unlikely. But that you have compatible appetites is almost certain. That's a very important statement. Compatible, yes. Identical, probably not. I learned this through a hilarious story, though at first it nearly was a tragedy that a friend, this a counselor, told me a number of years ago. He kept the person's anonymous, but he said, I think you'll find this interesting. He had a lady come see him one day, and uh, she sat down and she said, I am seriously thinking about separating from my husband. And she said, but a friend encouraged me to come talk with you, and so I'm here. And she said, let me say, first of all, I, I, I love my husband. Uh, he is a wonderful father, and he's a really good husband in so many ways. But there's one particular area in our marriage that has caused us so much stress and so much difficulty. I'm just thinking that maybe separating for a season might be, might be wise. And so he said, well... Before you do that, what, what, what area are we talking about? And she said, well, we're talking about our sex life. She said, uh, my, my husband's a fanatic. He wants sex 24-7. If, if I weren't saying no as often as I do, we'd be in the bed all the time. And she said, it's become an area where we fight. It's become an area of enormous pressure. In fact, I really feel like I'm on the verge of an emotional breakdown. And I'm just thinking maybe a time of separation could be helpful to us. Well, this counselor is very wise, very wise. And he's also a bit playful, which I think makes him a good counselor as well. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, before you make that decision of separation, can I give you an assignment to go home and, and, and implement for a week? Just, just give it a week and see if it changes anything. And she said, well, what is it? He said, well, here's the deal. This was on a Friday, by the way. He said, uh, can you get rid of the kids over the weekend? She said, yes. He said, great, get rid of the kids over the weekend. What time will your husband be home from work tonight? She said, oh, he gets home about 5, 36 o'clock. He said, great. The moment he walks through that front door, you grab him by both ears and you drag him to the bedroom and you do what you need to do. Feed him supper and then at least one more time, two if you can, before you go to bed tonight. Saturday morning, wake him up at six again. Give him some breakfast, he'll need it by then. And then again before lunch, feed him lunch, again after lunch. And then he said, here's my deal. For one week, I want you to become a huntress. That was his word, not mine, a huntress. And I want you to track your husband down as many times as you can and have sex with him. Can you do that? And I'm a little bit offended by this, but she said, well, I can do anything for one week. So anyway, he sent her home on Friday. She was supposed to report the next Friday. She didn't. She called him on Monday. And she said to him, I don't know what you were trying to accomplish, but I think it succeeded. My husband is over in the corner of the bedroom and he is waving a white handkerchief at me. She says, he has a real scared look in his eye and um, we just had a good long laugh and a good long cry. And we both feel really dumb. Now, here's what she said. She said, because... Something that should have drawn us closer together for 15 years. Nearly tore us apart. All because we didn't talk. She said, 
we've discovered, and she's where I got, I didn't get this from some fancy PhD in marriage and family. I got it from a woman that I don't even know who she is. She said, we discovered that our appetites in this area, they're not identical, but they're very compatible. The problem was this, because he was always putting on the full court press, my default answer when he wanted to have sex was always no. And because my default answer was always no, he was always putting on the full court press. And if we had just talked, we would have saved ourselves 15 years of arguing, fighting, and crying. So that's why that word is underlined, you have to communicate. Now, take your little booklet for a moment because there is a really neat thing over on page 13, what happy couples say about sex. This was actually uh, reported a number of years ago in Reader's Digest magazine, and they had surveyed couples that said they had a happy, joyful, meaningful, intimate life, and this is what they said. Now, they gave us 10 ideas. I added the last two to, because I felt like the Bible also has a really good specific word about it. But just look very quickly at what happy couples say about sex. Number one, uh, they make sex a priority. It's important to them. Number two, they make time for sex. And by the way, those of us that have lived a good while know that different seasons of life require different time strategies. For example, when you first get married, just have sex anytime you want to, as long as you're available to each other. But uh, out of sex comes these giant cockroach creatures called children. And children are not an enhancement or an aid to your sex life. It is not by accident that there are no children mentioned in the Song of Solomon. They ain't there. They ain't there because you, they, they don't help. You, 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 you get married, uh, you have sex, you get pregnant, you have kids, and my gosh, you may have, like we, our twins were demonic. They were demon-possessed when they came into this world. In fact, I now understand why some animals eat their young. I absolutely do, because they would not sleep. They would wake up. They were, they, they were, they were synchronized in getting up at different times. One would wake up at one in the morning, the other one at three then five, then seven. I mean, my wife, true story, came to church one Sunday. She's a beautiful brown-eyed brunette, but she looked like she'd been run over by a tractor trailer. And so she comes in and a sweeter, older lady in God's amazing grace, she'd had twins, walks over and says, well, Charlotte, sweetheart, how are you and those twins doing? She explodes in tears. They won't sleep. I can't rest. I mean, she was just like, bless her heart. And she said, well, sweetheart, when one wakes up, you wake the other one up. What a novel idea. And of course, she said, well, that would be mean. And she said, not as mean as what they're doing to you. So when the one wakes up, you wake the other one up. And at least we got to where it was like one to five, which is still not great, but nine. So, I mean, sex? Are you kidding me? We barely had the energy to drag ourselves out of the bed. So children, when you're little, they don't have the sex thing. They, they are a detriment to that. But praise God, they, they grow up and they become adolescents and teenagers. And so that means you better make sure you got locks on the door, but you get the locks on the door and then praise the Lord. They, they, they grow up and they leave. Now, some of you that are younger, it's like, oh my goodness, please don't bring that up. I'm so, I'm already emotional about thinking about the empty nest. Oh my gosh, 
I became charismatic and spoke in tongues when they left. It was <laughs> glorious. It was wonderful. It was like having a honeymoon all over again. And this time we had money. And so it was like really, really neat. So no, the empty nest is wonderful. The only problem is they're like boomerangs. They keep coming back and coming back and coming back. But you, you learn to deal with it. So different seasons of life require different time strategies, all right? Number three, they stay emotionally intimate. Number four, they know how to touch and what works. Now, again, uh, your mate may not be like you. How many of y'all are familiar with Gary Chapman's book, The Five Languages of Love? Great book. I would encourage all of you to read it. I think he's onto something. Bottom line, he says, we all have a particular love language or maybe two love languages. And they're all sent one word, a touch, words, time, gifts, service. There they are. Touch, words, my two. Uh, gifts and time, Charlotte's too, and service. And of course he points out, the problem is many times we try to speak our love language to our mate and we get upset because they don't respond. Well, it's not there, it's like you're speaking a foreign language to her or to him. So like for me, touch, oh my gosh, I love, I'm like a dog. I love to be touched, petted. I've already put in an order for heaven. I'm gonna have two angels. One to massage my left foot for all of eternity and one to massage my right foot for all of eternity. When we drive, I will flop my hand in Charlotte's lap and I, say, I will say, honey, rub my hand. And you say, what does she do? Oh, she just plays with it, pulls the fingers, scratches it, rubs it. How long? Oh, as long as she will. I mean, if we're driving 14 hours, I'll let her rub my hand for 14 hours. I, I, I am, that's how I'm wired. That is not her love language. I learned this, our first date. Our first date being the romanticist that I am, I took my wife to see the movie Jaws. <laughs> she still thinks that's funny. Well, but I had a strategy. Jaws can be scary. So if she gets scared, you, so on my first date, I get my arm around her, I'm doing pretty good. Well, and since I'm a touchy guy, I start rubbing her shoulder and I rub her shoulder. And after about three minutes on our first date, it's a miracle we got married. She looks at me and says, uh, are you trying to dig a hole in my arm? So I yanked my arm back. He said, well, you leave your arm there, but dear God, please don't rub in the same place. Well, her love language is not touch. Her love language is gifts and time. And so we, we understand this. We understand what, what works and how to touch or not touch one another, all right? Number five, they keep romance alive by meeting each other's needs, these seven of a woman, these five of a man. Number six, they keep their sexual anticipation alive. Number seven, this is so important, they know how to play and foreplay both in and out of the bed, I love to say, what, if you have a happy girl outside the bedroom, you'll usually have a happy guy inside the bedroom. That's why uh, romance is an environment in which sexual union happens more often and with greater satisfaction. So they know how to have fun with each other. Number eight, they know how to talk to each other. I love number nine because the longer you are married, the more important the latter phrase is, they remain lovers and friends. 10, they maintain a sense of humor and know how to laugh. And I would add, especially at themselves. 
And then number 11, following Philippians 2, they want to please each other. And number 12, they cherish each other as a sacred and precious gift of God. So these are things that happy couples say they do and they work at to ensure a happy, meaningful, satisfying, intimate life, all right? Go back now to our main page, Five Ways to Bless Your Husband, and look at number three. Cultivate home support. Cultivate home support. Create a home that offers him an atmosphere of peace, quiet, and refuge. Manage the home and care of the children. The home should be a place of rest and rejuvenation. And remember, the wife, the mother, she is the emotional hub of the family. In fact, I often say when it comes to family life, the dad is the security hub, but the mother is the emotional hub. Or to say it another way, ladies, you're the thermostat in the house. You're the thermostat. And if your personal thermostat goes up to about 90, 95, or God forbid 100, it's not just hot for you. It's hot for everybody. But get that puppy back down to about 75 or 70 or praise Jesus, 65. And it's not just cool for you. It's cool for everybody because we all know the colloquial saying. We all know it. In the home, if mama ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody going to be happy. Now, ladies, that may not be fair, but it is absolutely true. And I even learned this. A woman can control five men. A woman can handle five men. Now, let me, let me say it this way before I move into this. I discovered over all these years of being married that a good, godly woman who loves Jesus can still have a bad day, okay? A good, godly woman who loves Jesus can have a bad day. I mean, I came home one day, true story, came home one day, Charlotte met me at the front door and all she said was, I wanna tell you something, boys will do things a dog won't do. Now, I, to this day, do not know what they did. I don't want to know what they did. I'm sure that what she said was correct. And so I understand, you know, bless her heart. I mean, God condemned her to live in a male dormitory all those years. But I also learned that, you know, a woman can have a, have a bad day. And so in our family, we came up with a code, me and the four boys. And the code was mama has got that look in her eye. And that was our way of warning each other, just kind of, be careful and kind of back off and, you know, just be smart. So true story, true story. Came home one day, pull into the driveway. All four boys come out on the front porch, shut the door, and they are waiting for me. And so I walk up and they say, we need to talk. And Timothy, my youngest, the verbal one, says, dad, mom's got the look. And she's got it big time and you need to go in the house and do something. I said, well, all right, y'all just stay out here. Let me go check things out. So I went to the house, looked into the kitchen. There she was to the sink, which back, back of the house, looking out the back door, back, back window. And folks, I could tell by the way the woman was conducting business at the sink. Her body language screamed. Yeah, I got the look. So I quietly went back outside, shut the door, didn't say a word to her. Got the boys in a male huddle. And I said, all right, guys, um, you're right. She's got the look. And Timothy said, yeah, dad, she's got the look. We told you that. What are we gonna do? And I said, well, guys, here's my counsel. Every man for himself. (laughs) 
I said, uh, I've seen this look before, and it basically says, you need to leave me alone. So I'm going to leave her alone. I suggest you leave her alone. And if you cross her path, don't call me because <laughs> I'm not coming. We, we are all on our own, all right? But now, having said that, a godly woman can have a bad day. Ladies, you need to look up those Proverbs when you get home this afternoon because you will discover that God said, not Danny Aiken, God said, a man would rather live in the desert on the roof or in the attic than with a, I'll paraphrase it, a griping, nagging, whiny woman. The desert, the roof, the attic, than with a griping, nagging, whiny woman. It's wearsomeness to our bones. It sucks the life out of us. So there's a natural question you should be asking. Well, what will a man do if he is living with a griping, nagging, whiny, complaining woman? Very easy, fight or flight. Fight or flight. He'll fight with you or he'll run from you. Fight. Some men fight their wives physically. Most don't because it strips them of their masculinity. They go to jail where they belong. So most men don't fight their wives physically. So he may fight you verbally, but he won't do that very long either. You say, why not? Because we lose. We, 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 we just lose. We can't whoop y'all in a verbal battle. You say, why not? Well, it's very simple. Documented fact, not making this up. The average male speaks between 10 and 12,000 words a day. That's what the average male is capable of producing. The average female, 20 to 25,000 words a day with gust up to 50. And uh, I, I'm kidding about the gust, okay? That's a joke, just being playful. Don't you get mad at me. But y'all are verbal animals, y'all just are. So we can't beat you in a verbal battle. So what will we do? We'll take flight. Now, some men walk out of their marriages, but praise God, some men stay, but they walk away. You say, what do they do? They become workaholics. Uh, they become that guy that's involved in all those extracurricular activities like hunting and fishing. Or even though he's got an old ragtag body, he still drags his tail out there and plays softball or plays basketball or he does just something to, to stay out of the house. I had a friend in, in Wake Forest that uh, played on three softball teams in the fall, three softball teams in the spring, and three softball teams in the summer every year. I ran into him one day at the supermarket, and I said, I was trying to get in touch with you the other day. You're never at home. And uh, he said, uh, you do marriage conferences, don't you? I said, well, I do. Do you ever talk about men needing peace and quiet? And I said, I, I do. He says, well, peace and quiet for me is in left field at a softball game. And I thought, what a tragedy. Because peace and quiet ought to be in your home with your wife. And folks, I just want to again say to you, I'm at home wherever my wife is. Because she loves me well, she serves me. Yeah, we, we have our conversations, but she, my home is a place of rest and rejuvenation because there's a lady there that provides that kind of environment. And you bless your husband enormously by providing home support. All right, number four. Strive to be an attractive wife. Now, this paragraph is very specifically worded. Pursue inner and outer beauty in that order. 
Cultivate a Christ-like spirit in your inner self. And then keep yourself physically fit with diet and exercise and wear your hair, your makeup, and your clothes in a way that your husband finds attractive and tasteful. Let your husband be pleased and proud of you in public, but also in private. So ladies, first of all, you wanna work on that inner beauty, that Christ-likeness, which by the way, number one, will last forever. And number two, I love this, it makes you prettier on the outside. In other words, if you're a beautiful lady in here, you become a more beautiful lady out here. I'm thinking of a lady right now that the first time I ever met, she's in her 70s now. First time I ever met her, there wasn't anything, at least for me, that was stunning about her appearance. But as I got to know her, she was and still is one of the most godly, godly, godly women I've ever met in my life. And today, I think she's so pretty. I'm not sexually attracted to her. I'm not. But I think she is so very pretty because she is beautiful on the inside. So if you're beautiful in here, you become more beautiful outside. And you know what? You can be drop dead gorgeous. If you're not very pretty on the inside after a while, you don't look all that pretty on the outside either. Secondly, and I love this, now stay with me. Different men find different women attractive. Different men find different women attractive. And in fact, I will say to you all very honestly this morning that I think the best thing going is 59-year-old brown-eyed brunettes. That's the best thing going on the planet. And I got me one, and I'm going to keep her. Now, if you had told me when I was 21 years old that someday I would think a 59-year-old woman was the most beautiful thing in the world, I would have told you, you've absolutely lost your mind. What 21-year-old thinks like that? But this 61-year-old does. And here's what's so neat. In the Song of Solomon, one of my favorite books in the Bible, three times in that book, Solomon describes Shulamite, his bride, from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. Now, Here's what you know and don't know. You know he thinks she is drop-dead gorgeous. He thinks she is the most beautiful thing in the world. Secondly, you have no idea what she looks like. You have no idea because he uses this beautiful poetic language to describe her. So you know he thinks she's gorgeous, but you do not know what she looks like. And so what you want to do is be that beautiful lady to your husband because he was attracted to you because that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but certainly one of the reasons he married you. So you want to be this attractive lady inwardly and publicly, but you also want to be attractive lady privately too. And I don't want to make you ladies mad at me. I don't. But I do want to say just a very quick word to you about a very evil, wicked, demonic thing called a flannel gown. Can I just talk to you for just a moment from the heart about the evil, wicked, yea, demonic nature of the flannel gown. The fact of the matter is, ladies, there is no such thing as a sexy flannel gown. It does not exist. You say, how do you know? I've looked. <laughs> I, I have been into Victoria's Secrets. I even snuck into Frederick's of Hollywood when it was still in existence. And I said, hey guys, 
ladies, do y'all have a sexy flannel gown? Because I was going to buy one for my wife. And they said, there's no such thing as a sexy flannel gown. Why, why, why would you even ask that question? I, by the way, shared this brilliant insight one time in a church in Mississippi, Laurel, Mississippi, to be precise. Afterwards, this young lady came up to me. If looks could kill, I would not be with y'all today. She was hot, mad, got right in my face and said, my husband would like to talk to you. And she walks away and I'm thinking, my goodness, what, what, what brought that on? Well, here he comes. He ain't mad. No, that boy's grinning from this ear to this ear. Gives me a big old bear hug and says, man, where have you been all my married life? I want to invite you over to the house tonight because we're going to have a granny gown bonfire. I'm going to burn them all. <laughs> now, I don't always tell this story, but I'm going to tell this group and just run the risk because it is a risk. I've only had one guy in my entire life ever disagree with me. I was speaking somewhere, I can't even remember where it was, and this 85-year-old codger came up. Now, I don't think every man 85 is an old codger, but this guy had that devilish twinkle in his eye. And you knew he was in mischief. You know he'd stay in mischief till the day that he died. And he came up to me and he hit me in my ribs with his fist. It actually hurt. I mean, he popped me pretty good. And so I grabbed my ribs and looked at him. He said, I need to talk to you, young fella, because you all wrong about them flannel gowns. And so I'm rubbing my rib, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, and this is how he said, he said, my old lady and me, we've been married 60 years, and she's got a sexy flannel gown. I love it. So I'm still rubbing my ribs, and I say, well, what do you mean you, you like her flannel gown? I've never heard anybody say they like their wife's flannel gown. He said, I didn't say I liked it. I said, I love it. He said, It's old. It's got holes all in it. So I go to bed at night. It's like going treasure hunting in that flannel gown. <laughs> I never blush because I've heard everything, but I did blush. And so he hit me again and said, get you a holy flannel gown. You'll like it too. So if you've got one with holes all in it, we'll make that exception. I move on and close this session. Number five, you bless him by becoming his best friend. By becoming his best friend. Now, let me say this. Listen to me very carefully. We're going to take our last break. If Jeff had told me when I got here this morning that something had happened, some type of emergency situation, and I only had like three minutes with you all, this is where I would have gone. And I would have said, you want to have a blessed, happy, fulfilled marriage, then I have two suggestions. Number one, make sure you know Jesus as your Savior. And number two, work at becoming best friends and you'll have a good marriage. And that's the whole thing. Make sure you have Jesus and become best friends. So you say, so you, you, you knew that when you got married. No, I didn't. We got married with no premarital counseling because I lived in Dallas, Texas, going to Bible college. Charlotte lived in Atlanta. Our pastor, the Sunday night before we got married, the next Saturday, announced to our church that after 20 years of marriage, he and his wife were separating and getting a divorce. 
we met with him on Monday morning and he said, well, normally I have some things I say, but after last night, I don't think I can say really anything. I'll see y'all at the rehearsal Friday. And that was the totality of our premarital counseling. So when we got married very young, I was very spoiled. I'll share in the morning, Charlotte grew up in a children's home because of alcoholic parents. So we had a lot of learning to do. And I did not think I was marrying my best friend. I was marrying this really pretty brown-eyed brunette that I loved, that I was sexually attracted to, that was very gifted in a number of areas where I was totally inept. And I was like, you know, this is a smart, I love her. She's pretty, she's sweet, she can do things. This is why, I, you know, this, 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 this makes sense. But today, if you were to ask me, do you have some really close friends? Oh, I do. I've got three or four men that are uh, inner circle to me that I'm very open with, very transparent with. But inside that circle is a circle of one. And in there's the very, very, very best friend I have in all the world. And that best friend is my wife, Charlotte. I playfully say, but not so much playful, she could ruin me if she wanted to. She could. Now, I'm, I'm not this horrible person that does all these horrible things, but I've, I've had bad days. I've, I've acted in ways that were very, not very much like Jesus, and I've said things that were not very much like Jesus, and she knows me better than anybody, and she still loves me. And she's my best friend. And what I've learned in life is this. If you and your mate become best friends... Number one, your marriage will last. And number two, your marriage will be fun and it'll be a blessing because best friends, number one, don't give up on their best friends. And number two, best friends like hanging out with their best friends. That's why they are best friends. So when I do premarital counseling today, when I do premarital counseling after talking to a couple about their relationship with Jesus... I will always ask this question. I usually start with the bride-to-be, and I'll say, do you like him? And nine times out of ten, they will say, oh, I love him. And I will say, oh, that's so sweet. That wasn't my question. <laughs> Let's try again. Do you like him? Do your parents like him? Do your friends like him? And then I'll ask the same thing. Do you like her? Do, do, do your parents like her? Do, do your friends like her? And then I will say to them, I want, if you're not already, I want to challenge you from this day moving forward to start working really hard. Not so much at being lovers. That'll take care of itself, I believe. But you work at becoming best friends. Because best friends don't give up on their best friends. Best friends like hanging out with their best friends. And best friends, indeed, make it together to the end. So all these other things come together. And I'll say this and we'll take our break. I think my list is correctly prioritized with this footnote. I think when you first get married, best friends probably in your mind as a man in particular, maybe as a woman as well, it's kind of down there at number five. But over the years you're married, it starts climbing the ladder and it moves into number four and then number three and then number two. And finally it ends up where it belongs at number one. And here's what I've learned in life. If you and your husband are best friends, he'll find you attractive. If you and your husband are best friends, that home will be a place of rest and rejuvenation. 
If you and your husband are best friends, you'll be lovers. And if you and your husband are best friends, he will know that you admire him and that you respect him. So Father, bless these sweet ladies. Help them to be the women that you created them to be and have saved them to be for your great glory and the good of their marriage and their family. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.